0: I'm so glad you're here for this message. I, I want to spend this time talking about what does the Bible say about race and racism. There's so many opinions all over the place, but the scriptures have spoken to the human condition with unique power for two thousands of years. So uh, I hope you'd be really glad that you tuned in for this message. And the main observation that I want to make is one that might come as a surprise. In the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, There's a picture of what the human community will look like when it's redeemed by God. The text says, "Uh, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. It's a picture of enormous joy and gratitude and worship and adoration. Uh, No social distancing, no masks. They keep standing up and then falling down before the throne, throwing their crowns. It's a a picture of enormous energy and delight. Unimaginable diversity, but just one great multitude. Um, There is a ride at Disneyland uh, that you have to go if you have little children, and it features all kinds of peoples, tribes, customs, uh, dress, language, and everything. Uh, But over and over again, you hear these words, it's a small world after all. The world of laughter, world of tears, world of hopes, world of fears. There's so much that we share. It's time we're aware. It's a small world after all. By the time you're done with that ride, you are sick of those words. That song will drive you crazy for a week later. Now, where did that idea come from? Small world after all. So much that we share. As far as I know, there was never a true actionable plan to create a community of all different kinds of human beings, every nation and every culture before this picture in Revelation. And that idea was actually the payoff of a promise that God made to Abraham way at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, where he says, And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, and in Jesus It happened. What God said, God will do. The Egyptians couldn't stop him. The Babylonians couldn't stop him. The Romans couldn't stop him, not with a cross. Hitler couldn't stop him. Stalin couldn't stop him. Mao couldn't stop him. Pol Pot couldn't stop him. Every tribe and tongue and people and language. According to Ethnologue, there are now 7,097 languages spoken in the world. Which is God's favorite? Which one is God going to love to hear around his throne? Every language, every tribe, think about this, Albanians and Tasmanians and Pomeranians and Mesopotamians and Canadians, Philistines and Filipinos and Philippians and French and Finns and Scotch and Irish and Dutch, Israelis and Palestinians, Babylonians, Belgians, Bulgarians, Belarusians, the Botswana. If you're from Botswana, you're not Botswanian. and you're just the Botswana. I don't know why. For 2,000 years, this vision of reconciled and redeemed family of humanity has challenged and thrilled the world. And it's our legacy. We're part of this. But here's what's striking for today about that text in Revelation. John, the author, says nothing about including people of all races. In fact, this little description of diverse human community gets repeated seven times in Revelation. And the order of those four words, nation, tribe, people, language, gets varied in very ingenious ways, but not one single time does that description mention God including people from all the races. What's up with that? Oddly, we've seen this strange, weird phenomenon elsewhere. When the early church got started, its single most striking characteristic from a human perspective was its remarkable inclusivity. Before this, religion was basically a tribal affair, but now all of a sudden there's this community meeting all over the place, and Paul puts it like this, for now there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Historian Thomas Cahill says, this is the first expression of egalitarian thought in all of human history. It would change the world. And it's not just there. Paul writes to the church at Colossae, very similar notion. Here, that is in the church, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now Israel had pretty much divided people up in the Jew and Gentile. That wall has come down. Rome divided people up pretty much into Romans or barbarians. They got that word barbarian because other languages sounded to them like people were just saying bar, 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 not educated, not cool like us. That wall came down. Scythians were regarded as particularly uncouth barbarians. Nobody wanted the Scythians around. But Paul says a Colossae, here they are. But Paul never mentions race. When he's talking about the early church, he never says in Christ there is neither black nor white. Now, we know that there were people from Africa in the early church, and Acts, one of the early members, is a government official from Ethiopia, finds out about Jesus, gets baptized. The church at Antioch, amazing church, there's a leadership team of five people, very diverse. Two of them are from Africa. But Paul never says, look at this, black and white people worshiping together. Why not? Was race just too touchy a subject for Paul to talk about? Go back earlier in the Bible. At the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, we're told that God begins the human race, but we're never told what race Adam is. The whole 10th chapter of Genesis is called the Table of Nations, all peoples, different tribes, different languages. It never says a word about race. In fact, the word race never appears in the Bible. Check it out. And the reason for this is in the Bible, races did not exist. In other words, God did not create race. Or another way of saying this, largely not understood in our day, the idea of categorizing people by race, categorizing them by the color of their skin, white, black, brown, Asian, indigenous, and so on, was not done In biblical times was not done in the ancient world. Of course, they knew there was diversity. They were the fact that people looked different and had different languages and different customs, had different appearances, and they were just as capable as we are of treating people in the out group badly. But they did not take a bunch of people from Europe and say, you're white, or people from Africa and say, you're black. So the reason the Bible never condemns the sin of racism is that racism had not been invented yet. That took a while. That took power and greed and the devil. It's covered in a book called This Side of Heaven, published by Oxford University Press, but there are a lot of other folks, a lot of other authors who cover this topic also. A lot of us think about race as a scientific term. And we were taught, maybe, that people could be put into pure racial categories based on genetics or biology or something, but they cannot. The category of race did not arise from science. In the early history of our century, uh, slaves were mostly Scots or Irish or poor English They were indentured servants. They could work off their servanthood. But one of the problems was if they ran away from the plantation because of their language and their skin color, they could blend in and they were hard to track down. However, people from Africa could not blend in because of their skin color and their language. And as shipping improved, kidnapping Africans and making them slaves became a huge business. Now, back in Bible times, in the ancient world, slavery was ubiquitous, but it wasn't race-based. You became a slave because you were poor, so you got sold into it to work off your debt, or because your tribe lost a war, or because you committed a crime and they didn't have many jails back then, so slavery was also a punishment. But around 1500s, 1600s, an idea arose, and it came from hell, and it came from hell. And it was that you could place people in a category called race, based on their skin color, hair type, and from the beginning, see, welded to that was the idea that some races are superior to others. White people were smarter, they would work harder, they had more emotional control, and therefore they ought to rule over particularly the black race. This was all driven by greed and power. During the 1700s and 1800s, as science gained prestige, uh, pseudoscientific theories reinforced this. And naturalists back then began to talk about uh, uh, words like caucasoid or negroid or mongoloid. If you're old enough, I can remember when those words used to get thrown around, as though those were categories that existed, as though those were subspecies of the human race that could actually be kept pure. Now, this had never been done before, and eventually, by about the second half of the 20th century, it was clear to biologists there was no scientific basis for those categories at all. In other words, there's no genetic variants that occur in all members of one uh, racial group but not others. In fact, the variations within any particular group are much, much bigger than any variations between groups. So, from a genetic or scientific standpoint, one geneticist puts it like this, the answer to the question whether races exist in humans is clear and unambiguous, no. Say that one more time. The answer to the question whether races exist in humans is clear and unambiguous, no. In other words, God didn't make races. That's why the word is not in the Bible. God made diversity. He made people with different cultures and different languages and different different, uh, appearances and different customs, and he loves that. That will go with us into heaven. But the category of race, the idea of dividing people up based on skin color, is an invention of the devil. Uh, In Romans, Paul talks about how God gives people over to a depraved mind. Sin always causes us to think wrong thoughts. It always does. And part of what is so evil about this is, you know, in the ancient world, they had slavery. It was ubiquitous, but they didn't justify it. They didn't feel like they needed to. They just, I have more power, you're my slave. But once people began to follow Jesus, you know, then we had to follow the golden rule. And then in those centuries, 1600s, 1700s, If I'm going to break the golden rule, i got to find a way to justify it. And so this narrative arose of white supremacy that enables me to oppress and exploit other people and think it's okay. Now, I'm not calling on us to never use the word race. Uh, the, The concept right now is not something we can make go away. It's part of our culture. Part of the growth that a lot of people, including me, need to have is to just be freed, cleansed from The remnants of those centuries of thought that just get into my perceptions and my facial expression and my body language, where I look at people through a lens that distorts the image of God in them. It's not that I want to, it just gets in me. What I want all of us to understand is race is not a product of our God or of nature or of science. Race was a lens human beings invented to justify sin, oppressing and exploiting others by looking at other human beings and not seeing the fullness of the image of God in them. That's race. Race is a lens human beings invented to justify sin by enabling me to look at another person and not seeing the wonder and the fullness of the image of God in that person. That's why Paul doesn't say, there is now neither black nor white. That's why Revelation does not say, every tribe and tongue and people and nation and race. That is why it is true that God invented only one race, and that is the human race. Raucous applause at this point. Now, here's the good news. God gave us the solution to racism way before racism ever got invented. Uh, the oldest way of dividing human beings up in the world is us versus them. This is as old as Cain and Abel. We create in-groups and out-groups. Uh, this this does go way back to ancient times and right up to modern times, and we can do this over anything. There was a teacher named Jane Elliott back in the '60s. She was teaching a class of third graders in Iowa, all uh, white children. And this is the day after Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, and she wanted to try to communicate to these children what was going on, what racism was about. So she got this idea. Kids came into class this day, and she said, "Uh, children, I have to tell you something. We need to divide our class up into blue-eyed children and brown-eyed children because children, blue-eyed children are superior to brown-eyed children. Blue-eyed children are smarter and prettier and better and nicer and that's why we need to make their experience different if you're a blue-eyed children you get to go to lunch first and you get to have seconds and you could stay at recess longer but not you brown-eyed children brown-eyed children had to wear a collar to show that they were brown eyed children and then this difference got spread real quickly and uh jane said at one point everybody's ready to read except jody and one of the kids said yeah jody's brown eyes And Jane said, yeah, you'll find we have to wait for the brown-eyed a lot. And uh, at recess, kids would get into fights over whether they were brown-eyes or blue-eyes. Brown-eyed students had the look and the behavior of thoroughly defeated human beings. And this happened so fast, it was stunning. The next day, the children came in and said, children, I have to tell you something. Uh, I lied to you yesterday. Actually, it's brown-eyed children who are superior. It's brown-eyed children who are nicer and smarter and prettier and better. And the whole thing uh, flipped. And she said she watched what had been a marvelous, cooperative, thoughtful, wonderful group of children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little tyrants in about 15 minutes. Us versus them. See, this, this, this is deep sin. This is lovelessness. And at the heart of the Bible is tearing down the wall that separates any us versus them. This is what the Bible is about. I know there's lots of complexities as we look at our society right now, but we're looking at the Bible right now. And the Bible says the wall that divides us and them has got to go. And we see this all through the Old Testament. I'll give you one uh, very striking little example. In the book of Numbers, back in the day of Moses, his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron Uh, we're told, began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? Now the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Uh, By the way, you all know Moses is associated with the Pentateuch. One of the ways we know there was an editor involved is it's very hard to imagine Moses himself writing. I was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on earth. And Miriam and, and uh, Aaron say this about him. And then we're told the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted up from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. And there's an irony in this that's almost funny. Anybody know what color leprosy turns the skin? I have a few people in here. Anybody know? Turns the skin white. Uh, It's like God is saying, you enjoy being white so much, let's double down. Just go to it, man. White as you want to get. And Moses prays. Moses, the humble man, humble enough to say, there must not be any us versus them. By the way, this is a time for real humility. You know, one of the things that sin always does is it blinds us to its presence. When there's pride in me or, or lust in me, very often I can't see it, but other people can. And it's that way with the sin of racism too. There's a real good chance if it's in me I may not be the world's leading expert on being able to see it and to be humble enough to listen, particularly to be humble enough to listen to some of my black brothers and sisters and say, tell me, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you think? To be humble. God, do we need humility right now? And that's Moses. And and now his wife, a Cushite, is a part of God's people. Now God's people have a little Cushite DNA in them. And we see it, it's like a little grace note that runs through the Old Testament. Ruth's a Moabite, and now there's a little Moabite DNA, and, and uh, Rahab is in Jericho, and that DNA gets in. But of course, our master teacher here, as in everywhere else, is Jesus. And Jesus is the great includer. Within Israel, the, the outgroup inside of Israel, the outgroup were uh, people like uh, prostitutes and lepers and the differently abled because they were considered deformed and uh, tax collectors. And they're constantly embraced by Jesus. He talks with them, touches them, eats with them, gets in big trouble for this. But where it gets really interesting, gang, is with the Samaritans. Uh, Samaritans were despised in Israel for being uh, spiritually unfaithful and morally unclean. There's an ancient Israelite saying, May I never set eyes on a Samaritan. God, would you keep my eyes holy so I would never even have to look at one of them? And yet the Samaritans keep popping up in Jesus' life. You might think it's an accident at first, but over and over again. One time he cleanses a group of 10 lepers, and uh, it's so fascinating. He tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. That word priests is plural. If they were all Israelite, he would just say, go to one priest, an Israelite priest, a Jewish priest. But he tells the Samaritan, you can go show yourself to the Samaritan, non-Orthodox priest. Really interesting. And the Samaritan is the only one that comes back to say thank you. And Jesus points this out and commends him for it. The Samaritan. Let me never have to set eyes on a Samaritan. Maybe Jesus' most famous story is about a man that Jesus says is robbed And Jesus says, is stripped of his clothes and left laying on the side of a road. And uh, two Jewish people, Jewish heroes, a a priest and a Levite, religious leaders, just passing by on the other side. But the man who stops, the man who cares, the man who helps, is a Samaritan. By the way, the reason Jesus uh, actually points out the man is stripped of his clothes is, of course, Jewish people were circumcised. And the Samaritan sees this man who has been stripped of his clothes and knows he's the enemy. He's one of them. And still, it's the Samaritan who stops. Jesus is just in people's face with a Samaritan thing all the time. In the chapter right before that story, Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples are passing through a village. It's a Samaritan village. Not surprisingly, that village does not want to provide hospitality. And his disciples asked Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Yeah, like they could do that. And Jesus says, no, I don't think so. And Jesus rebukes not them, the Samaritans, but us, his disciples. He says, I came to save people, not destroy them. The longest conversation Jesus has with any human being in any of the gospels Is recorded in the fourth chapter of John, and it is with a Samaritan woman. Meets her at a well. You might remember, if you know the story, he asks her for a drink of water, and she is stunned that he does. There's good reason for this. It's an ancient rabbinic saying um, let no Israelite eat one mouthful of anything that is a Samaritan, for if he eat but a little mouthful, it is as if he ate a swine's flesh. And there was nothing more offensive, more blasphemous than that. And and yet, that's what Jesus does. There's a little verse in this story, gang, that's marching orders for you and me. I love this. Jesus, in the story, was going from the south, Judah, up north to Galilee, Samaria's in between them. And the old King James Version puts it like this, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Now, the whole thing is, he didn't have to go through Samaria. There was a bypass road, and generally, for Israelites, they would take that bypass road going north, so they did not have to pass through Samaria. This is most likely not a statement of geographical necessity. One writer puts it like this, Jesus was under divine necessity as an envoy of the Father to seek out the Samaritans. He must needs go i got to go where they are. We must needs go. We must needs go beyond us to them, whoever them is. We, if we're followers of Jesus, must needs go beyond our comfort zone. We must needs go beyond what is familiar. We must needs go beyond what is easy. We must needs go beyond people who look like us. We must needs go beyond our little in-group. Now, this is going to get Jesus into a lot of trouble. Hey, Jesus, your job is to get people into heaven. You start hanging out with the Samaritans, that's going to be divisive. People will be tired of hearing about it. I've never heard a Samaritan. I've got nothing against Samaritans. Why do you keep bringing them up. In fact, fact, this is in the Bible, Jesus' identification with the Samaritans, them, was so strong that eventually his own people said to him, aren't we right in saying you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And those two were just about on a moral par. A Samaritan, one of them, and demon. Jesus seemed to think that the Samaritans were part of us. Jesus seemed to think that his missions included the Samaritans. It's like he went around with this big sign Samaritan lives matter. <laughs> He appeared to think that his mission included creating a community of people so devoted to love for all human beings that their signature move, their great source of joy was trampling down the barriers that had separated human beings before his great movement. It's a small world after all. There's so much that we share What is it that we share? We hear a lot about diversity in our day. You understand what makes people so prized is not how we are different. It is how we are the same. It is what we share in common, and that is the image of God. That's what makes people so prized. And diversity matters. Because every human being is made by God and all of those customs and tribes and languages and cultures help me to see and understand the bigness and the vastness and the goodness of God in much richer ways than I ever could if I was just by myself. Every one of those human beings is somebody for whom Jesus went to the cross to tear down the dividing wall of hostility. Diversity is incredibly important but we will never understand. That what makes human beings most valuable is not what makes us diverse. It's what we share. There's so much that we share, and that is the image of God in everybody. That's what makes diversity so valuable. And I'll tell you what. The Samaritans loved that man. The outsiders loved him because he came as the great outsider. Misfits loved him because he came as the great misfit. The woman in John 4 went back and told her whole town. And many believed in Jesus just because of what she said. And they begged Jesus to stay with them. Jesus, the Jewish rabbi. And Jesus said, okay. And he stayed with them two days. God, may I never set eyes on a Samaritan. Anybody who eats what a Samaritan does, it's like they had eaten a little mouthful. It's like a whole swine. He stays with them two days. And then we're told many more of them become believers. Now what are you going to do with all those Samaritans? This is the beginning of his ministry. So now, gang, I'll tell you what we're all called to because he's our leader. These were words that would remake the human race. You know, uh, early Christians used to talk about the church because they had been so used to thinking Jew and Gentile as uh, a third people, a third ethna, a third tribe. Neither this nor that. Paul writes, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What's a worldly point of view? I carry more of the image of God than you do. I'm on top, you're on bottom. We're all done with that now. We're all done with that now. Now that may take some time, see. God's going to have to help me with that. Maybe you. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, do we not speak the truth when we say, you're a Samaritan? We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. God helping us, we're done looking through old sinful lenses like the race lens. The old is gone, the new has come. Oh God, may this come to us today. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth on the corner of 38th and Chicago and Minneapolis. In every school, in every home I'm looking into right now, in every neighborhood where you are, in every office, in every city, in every church, in every heart, starting with my heart. Now, if you want to be a part, what do you do? Well, use your privilege. Use your privilege. We're hearing a lot about the notion of privilege these days, and especially white privilege in our day. Uh, Privilege, white or not, is a bundle of assets I did not deserve or earn. That's what privilege is. It's a bundle of assets. I didn't deserve them. So where do we go to find out how to manage our privilege? Who was the greatest privilege manager of all time? And if you're not saying Jesus by now, you are not listening. So the answer would be? It would be Jesus. This is the greatest passage on privilege that you will ever read. And it was written, for crying out loud, 2,000 years ago. In your relationships, in your culture, in your society, in your small world, I don't care what cable channel you listen to, let your mindset be that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God. My friend, Greek professor Jerry Hawthorne used to say, who precisely because as the best translation is a little verb who park a little circumstantial verb who precisely because he was in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather he made himself nothing poured himself out by taking the very nature of a servant being made in the appearance of man and being found in likeness of a man he humbled himself became obedient to death even death You want to know how to use privilege. Nobody ever had the privilege that Jesus had, being in very nature God. Lots of us would like to think we're there. He was, and he deserved it. And he decided, precisely because he is God, that rather than use privilege to enhance his own life, he would spend his privilege to save ours that's the cross. That's the man for me. Now, that's our call, Menlo, as a church. So, use your privilege, whatever you got. If you have resources, if you have an education, if you got a network, if you got a job, if you can help tutor, if you can help fund, If you can make a difference in the life of a single human being, if you can go shop at a neighborhood where you wouldn't normally shop just to be around some people that your eyes could take a good look at through a different lens, if you can read a book like uh, there's a book, The Hate You Give, I read last year, amazing book about uh, a girl who grows up black written by a radiant follower of Jesus if you can have a conversation, if you can insist at a school, if you can tutor somebody, if you can pray, if you can let one person in your circle know in a non-superior kind of way that racism is not okay. Be like Jesus. Use your privilege. Go online. We have all kinds of partners as a church. we got AbleWorks and New Door Ventures and uh, Bayshore Christian Ministries and Generations United, Ravenswood Education Foundation, a bunch of other folks Uh, who would love to have people who want to come alongside and and work and learn together. And then then, then for sure, every one of us just needs to get on our knees. Again, this is an issue that involves lots of different arenas, politics, uh, education, law enforcement, calls for people to uh, think real deeply, to become subject matter experts on them and speak into them. But it is ultimately a spiritual battle. We're fighting against an evil that came from the pit of hell and that vies with Jesus for supremacy in the world. And so we start with pray. Guys, you understand, what changed the ancient world is not that Rome got it right. It's the church that got it right. And I'm not a minister of the United States of America. I'm a citizen and I pray for it. But I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what made the church explode in particular particular, was that one man, Paul, who had been the single biggest excluder, hater ever, became, under the power of Jesus through the cross, the biggest includer and lover, and sacrificed himself, his comfort, his career, got beaten, got stoned, got shipwrecked, and ultimately martyred to just say, you come on in, you come on in, you come in. So, Uh, I want to pray. Pastor Herman last week talked about a prayer of lament, and uh, uh, that's often something that we don't engage in a lot, but I want to pray a prayer of lament that I would invite everybody to join in just as we lament this particular problem in our world. And then I want to confess personally, and and if that's helpful, you can join that, or you could just hear it. But I want to invite everybody, use these moments right now with God, would you? Now, I lament the unbearably cruel assault on and death of George Floyd. I lament Maude Arbery, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, Breonna Taylor, Alton Sterling, Michael Brown, so many others we have seen on video. Unnumbered more that we have not seen. I lament the kidnapping of 11 millions from Africa, the death of 2 millions on the ships, the enslavement and brutalization of those who arrived on these shores. I lament 250 years of chains and another century of Jim Crow dehumanization. I lament the gaps of opportunity and education and health and income and safety and mass incarceration that last until now. I lament the polarization that divides our nation. And then I confess, now this I do just for myself, but whatever brothers or sisters uh, need to do this can as well. I confess my apathy. I confess my blindness. I confess my timidity in speaking with clarity and boldness. I confess my preoccupation with my own career and life and agenda. That caused me, God, to miss yours, my avoidance of entering into pain, my ignorance of the damage and exhaustion, and the names of those who have suffered. And I ask, God, for the the knowledge to do your will and the power to carry it out. that I pray this, we pray this, in Jesus' name, amen.